Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. I hate to bring up that whole William the Conqueror thing, but since the year 1066, the French and the English have been battling it out, with swords at first and later guns. Our correspondent says the vying for supremacy is now playing out in a more refined arena. And India's Hindu nationalist leaders are really squeamish when it comes to talking about sex. But somebody's got to tell the youth about the facts of life. Since schools aren't doing it, social media influencers and brands are filling the knowledge gap. But first... In Ukraine, there isn't just spring, summer, autumn, and winter. There's another season. Known as Bezdorizhia in Ukrainian or Rasputitsa in Russian, it's the muddy season. In the autumn, heavy rains transform Ukraine's countryside and roads. The mud fills trenches. Farm tracks leading to the front lines are turned into slippery swamps. Armored vehicles founder and soldiers slip. When Ukraine launched its counteroffensive in June, the hope was to be a lot further along by the time the muddy season came round again. There was a lot of anticipation and there was a lot of hope that Ukraine will be, at this point, almost at the border with Crimea, that it would manage to break through that land corridor that connects the parts of eastern Ukraine occupied by Russia to Crimea, which Russia had annexed in 2014. And unfortunately, that has not come to fruition. Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia and Eastern Europe editor. Though, as everything else in this war, this counteroffensive has also brought its own surprises and its own revelations, which is what Valery Zaluzhny, the commander-in-chief of Ukrainian armed forces, told me this week when we spoke. He also wrote by invitation column, which you can read online. So what was it that he was telling you then about this counteroffensive? So what Zaluzhny told me, and he was very, very honest, as he's always been actually very straight, he acknowledges that in this five months of the counteroffensive, Ukraine has managed to progress only by 17 kilometers. That's nothing. This is more that Russia had managed to do in 10 months before that. But it's still very short of where the expectations were, because according to NATO's rulebook, he told me, 
a NATO standard army, and Ukraine is not a NATO standard army, but nevertheless, a NATO standard army would have to progress by about 30 kilometers a day. By now, Ukraine would have gone into Crimea, would have fought in Crimea, would have come back from Crimea and repeated that exercise two or three times over. Instead, it only progressed 17 kilometers. And so what did Mr. Zeluzhny tell you about any particular reasons for that slow progress? He first thought, well, maybe there is something wrong with my commander. So he went and changed some of the commanders. And then he said, maybe there is something wrong with my soldiers. And he changed some of the soldiers. And none of that made much of a difference. And then it sort of dawned on him that there is some objective reason why neither the Russian army, which is vast, nor his army, which is extremely well-motivated and now has been trained and equipped with Western weapons, can actually break through. And he told me, this was a typical Zaluzhny kind of line, he said, you know, at that point, I told my staff to go and dig out a book which he read when he was at a military academy. And that book was by Soviet Major General, published in 1941. But actually, that general described the positional fighting of the First World War of the years 1914, 15, 16, and 17. And Zaluzhny said by the time he got half through the book, he recognized that this is exactly where he is now, that two armies are stuck in the trenches because the technological development is such that neither can deliver surprise and neither can break through. And they are now in this deadlock, which is why this war has descended into the stage of positional warfare. That's when basically the two armies fire artillery at each other and they crawl by tens of meters a day rather than being able to maneuver and strike at the same time. And basically, he says that this war cannot be won with last generation of weapons. And this war cannot be won with all tactics. So... He says there has to be something that will change the status quo, like Chinese inventing gunpowder, which is still used today, you know, obviously in warfare. Well, what does that revelation mean, though, for the, the future of this conflict? His worry is that the longer this war goes on, and this is the scenario which he's desperately trying to avoid, is if this war gets stuck, as it were, in the trenches of the First World War, if this war gets prolonged, the advantage will be on Russia's side. And he worries about the toll it's going to take on the Ukrainian state, how it's going to wear it down, and on the Ukrainian people. And of course, Ukraine is a country one quarter the size of Russia with a very different attitude to human life. In Russia, life is the cheapest resource. In Ukraine, it's the most expensive resource. And Russia has an economy which is 10 times the size of Ukraine, which is why for Zaluzhny, it's absolutely essential that this technological advantage comes sooner rather than later. But in, in the face of that big, long-term, high-level picture, what about the, the nearer term? What does this war then start to look like in the next weeks and months and into next year? Ukraine is effectively unable to use all that armor that had been supplied by the West, because as soon as it concentrates its forces for a breakthrough, the Russians detect it 
pretty much immediately in the same way as the Ukrainians have done with the Russian tanks and vehicles, and they pulverize it with artillery. So Ukrainian forces had to effectively dismount and advance by foot. And because it's just man and foot, Zaluzhny said they will continue to carry on. Keeping them moving is extremely important. They'll continue to advance, and particularly they will continue to strike at Crimea, which he thinks is the point of the greatest vulnerability of Vladimir Putin and the Russian army, tactically as well as psychologically. But what about the picture outside of Russia and Ukraine? What about Ukraine's allies while this seeming stalemate or coming stalemate is playing out? Obviously, we're coming into election year in the US. And there is a worry that the will and the politics in America will change to extend that it starts undermining Ukrainian effort. That's certainly what Vladimir Putin is hoping for. But the fact is that I think the American politicians have to recognize that they don't have an option of just getting tired of this war because it's not just about Ukraine. It's also about the show of American ability to deter this sort of action and to keep international order. And without American support, it will be very hard to sustain it. Although I think also we need to keep in mind that European countries have now given more support collectively to Ukraine than America has. And I think particularly if this war gets stuck in this kind of moment of a hundred year ago war, the First World War, I do worry that this could undermine potentially the resolve. And back to Valery Zaluzhny, the man who is now commanding the most combat experienced army in the largest war in Europe since 1945, who really carries the weight of his country, his nation, for him, there is absolutely no way but to press on. And as he said to me at the end, we need to look for this solution, for this technical solution. We need to find this gunpowder quickly. We need to quickly muster it, and we need to use it for a speedy victory. Because sooner or later, as he said, Ukraine will come to the problem where basically it's running out of people. And this is even before we start talking about the problems of Ukrainians rebuilding their state. Arkady, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. Yesterday on Babbage, our weekly show on science and technology, my colleagues took a deep dive into something called embryoids, model embryos grown in the lab. They promised to transform understanding about fetal development and health, but they also raise thorny ethical questions. To hear that episode and all of our weekly shows, you knew this was coming, you'll need to be a subscriber to the print and digital editions or to our shiny new Economist Podcasts Plus. If you haven't already joined that club, you can get a free 30-day trial to get you hooked on the intellectual drug of our audio journalism. Head to the show notes for more or just search Economist Podcasts. On October 20th, there was a painting sold at Christie's in Paris by Miro, a Spanish artist. Alexandra Suich bass is The Economist's culture editor. It was really beautiful. It had squiggly stick figures, stars, and colorful dabs of paints. It fetched more than 20 million euros, which makes it one of the most expensive paintings sold in France in recent decades. 
And I see it as a symbol of Paris's growing clout in the art world. Part of the sale that just occurred in Paris, the Italian works, used to be held in London. But Christie's shifted that auction to Paris. And this is part of a larger trend where Paris is really booming in the art world. And a lot of art enthusiasts and collectors are really excited by what they see as Paris's rise, to some extent, at the expense of London's. So what is it that they're seeing in terms of Paris's rise? So the Miro sale is not one isolated example. It's part of a larger trend for more commerce taking place at auction houses in Paris. Last year, Sotheby's had 70 auctions in the City of Lights. It's 140% more than in 2013. And London still has more auctions. Last year, there were 131 auctions, but the numbers are growing at a smaller pace. We're seeing international galleries, such as Hauser & Wirth, which is a Swiss firm, setting up shop in Paris. I spoke with one Austrian gallery owner who told me that the number of galleries opening in Paris right now is extraordinary and unlike anything he's seen in any other city. That being said, France's art market is still small compared with Britain's. Britain claimed 18% of the $68 billion in art sales worldwide last year. France had a mere 7% of the global art market. But Paris's share is growing, and there's a zeitgeisty quality to Paris's rise, where Paris is on the minds and lips of a lot of art collectors in a way it wasn't a few years ago. So what's going on here? Why are Paris's fortunes increasing in this way? Brexit is definitely one reason why we're seeing Paris rise. It changed the dynamics for buyers and sellers of art. So before, if you were a European buyer buying in London, you could bring the painting or artwork that you had just purchased back to your country without any sort of import duty. That's no longer the case. So now, as a European buyer, one is charged between 5 and 20% of the total value of the artwork. And so that has changed the costs and considerations for European sellers and buyers of art who sometimes prefer now to buy at auction within the EU. I spoke to Lance Entwistle, a dealer of tribal art in Paris, and he confirmed Brexit really had changed things. Brexit definitely slowed down trade and the the ease of, you know, backwards and forwards of inventory. And as he told me, post-Brexit, there's a lot more paperwork and red tape to contend with. It is more complicated. It's a lot more expensive. And I, frankly, have found... The notorious French bureaucracy, easier to deal with than the British, and more rational. That sentiment's been echoed by artists I spoke with, who told me that getting their work in and out of the UK is much more difficult these days. So that's it, that's the answer. Um, Brexit, it ruined London's fortunes in the art world too. No, it's definitely not that simple. There's something else afoot. I spoke to Charles Stewart, Sotheby's chief executive, who pointed to some other factors that help explain France's boom. You know, French, I think the intersection of luxury and culture and luxury and art, which is, you know, heavily driven by the two biggest luxury brands in the world, which are Pinot and LVMH, plays into Paris. One example of this collision of art and luxury is the Fondation Louis Vuitton, which is owned by Bernard Arnault, 
one of the richest men in the world who made his fortune from luxury goods. Right now, it has a show of Mark Rothko's works. More than 100 works have been brought together, enormous color-drenched paintings that some see as a once-in-a-generation show that could only be put on if you have basically unlimited funds to run your private museum with. And that's where we see this collision of luxury and art really fueling Paris's boom. And of course, if this sounds a bit like déjà vu, that is true, from the late 19th century through the Second World War, Paris was the hub of the art market globally. It was more important than London, particularly in terms of modern art. But what happened was in the 1950s, France started imposing new taxes on art transactions, and that really fueled London's growth. And that history does suggest that changes to the financial environments can really affect how thriving an art hub is and how attractive it is to make art purchases. So how do you see this ending then, uh, keeping all of that in mind? Is Paris irretrievably going to surpass London once again? I think that it's going to be a competition and a rivalry in the coming years. And I think that's good for different artistic hubs so that they don't get too complacent. And so it's worth watching both London and Paris, both of which are incredibly rich cultural centers and will continue to be in the years ahead. It's also possible that market forces are going to change the dynamics for both cities. Recently, there's been a little bit of a course correction for the art market as conflict and financial wobbles in Asia and the rest of the world have taken a toll on some of the highest value art transactions and auctions that we're seeing. So what happens in the art market and the broader picture will in many ways be more determinative of Paris's and London's fates. I think both are important cultural hubs to watch, but there's a lot of uncertainty on the horizon as it relates to the market and people's appetite to buy expensive art in these uncertain times. Alexandra, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In India, the Hindu festival of Navratri is based on a classic good and evil tale of the goddess Durga triumphing over a buffalo demon. This year's nine-night celebration finished last week. Navratri is also associated with something else. There's a lot of consorting between the sexes during those nine nights. Everyone knows it, but not everyone mentions it. India's conservative leaders, they don't like to talk about sex publicly. Abhishek Kumar writes about India for The Economist and is based in Mumbai. In fact, it banned daytime 
condom commercials that it deemed explicit. Now, what it deems explicit is largely left to its interpretation. And one provincial government, that of Gujarat, long ago blamed the festival on a rise in abortions. So overall, the ruling party is quite coy when it comes to all things sex. And what has that meant for sex education? How, how do people learn about it if the government is dodging the topic? Generally, the first source of information for sex education should be schools, but that isn't quite happening. And it's a big failure by the government to confront an issue that it's uh, clearly uncomfortable with, even though it's necessary. In fact, five states have banned sex education outright, and uh, uh, that's led to some predictable results. Uh, One study found that 78% of boys had unprotected sex with their last partner, and uh, that's why the rates of sexually transmitted diseases are rising. Uh, Parents, too, are not too keen to talk about sex with their kids, and neither are teachers. Generally, when these things are taught at schools, they are in segregated classrooms where boys and girls are put in different classes, and that happens just once a year. Without the traditional methods of sex education, others are stepping in. Who else is stepping in, then, to fill that gap? Well, these are the social media influencers. There are obvious uh, risks here because uh, young people are not learning sex education from uh, the right medium, that is the schools, for instance. Uh, So they're turning online. Not all people are offering bad advice. Hi, my name is Dr. Tanea. You probably know me better as Dr. Cutris. I'm here to answer all of your questions that you didn't know who to ask about sexual and reproductive health. Uh, One is Tanaya Narendra. She's an embryologist with more than a million followers on Instagram. And she's from Uttar Pradesh and she calls herself a normal girl from a small town. So people are not intimidated by her and can listen to her stories. When we talk about cervical cancer, we're told that one of the risk factors for cervical cancer is promiscuous women, which basically means that if you have a lot of sex, you're going to have cervical cancer. Very conveniently forgetting to mention that if the partner uses condoms, the risk is not there as much as it is without any protection. And she covers very basic stuff like it could also be how do you use a public toilet in places like national highways or it could just be talking about pleasure when it comes to sex because all of these things are not allowed on national television. And then there are some signs that all these efforts are actually working. A study of teenage girls in northern India recently found that social media users had a greater understanding of birth control, pregnancy, sex than non-social media users. So the knowledge, I suppose, as it does among all generations, does eventually get around to some degree. But uh, as far as how it played out in, in this year's festival, how, how were things there? Pretty much as it happens every year. So boys and girls uh, uh, dance late into the nights. And uh, it appears that uh, the folks out there must have heeded some of the sexual health advice that the influencers offer because a shop owner in Gujarat uh, whom I spoke with said that he stocks up condoms ahead of the party, some 30 to 40 percent more. And some condom makers slash uh, prices in Navratri. One of them ran an ad campaign with the slogan, this Navratri play, but with love. Just a way for uh, the company to say that we know what happens during Navratri. Let's not be shy about it and might as well use a contraceptive rather than doing things uh, ordinarily. But that ad feature an adult actor named Sunny Leone and activist groups forced it to come down. But I think we can all learn from that, that even if the Indian government does not want to address sex, companies and influencers will fill that void. And not that they always do it for the audience's interests. Uh, Overall, the Indian government needs to lighten up a bit and uh, face the birds and the bees. Thanks very much for your time, Abhishek. Thank you very much, Jason, for having me. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.